Richard Hogan is a systemically trained family psychotherapist registered with the Family Therapy Association of Ireland. He is the best-selling author of Parenting the Screenager. I saw myself as wild. I saw myself as, you know, trying to deflect what I believed was an in, like an intrapsychic problem with me, you know, that I was dumb or stupid. His recent publication, Home is Where the Start Is, was a national bestseller and shortlisted for an Irish Book Award. He is the clinical director of the award-winning psychotherapy and counseling service, Therapy Institute. The psychiatrist diagnosed me as depressed. I knew I wasn't depressed, I knew my environment was depressing, but my father used to say negative things you know, and comments about me taking medication. And um, yeah, so that was hard. Richard Hogan. Absolutely delighted to have Gavin, you Gavin, it's great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm buzzing, man, because I have been uh, reading your latest book, the new book, Almost Where the Start Is. And so much of that resonates with me. I think it would resonate with every single person because they have had a home to start from. And within that home, there are certain dynamics that have influenced the mm. type of people they've become in today's world. And we'll give them a lot of insight, answers, and information as to why they behave or act or live in a certain way today, understanding that this mm. comes back to deep, it goes to deep roots, not only in their previous family, mm. but down to intergenerational, yes, generational uh, families and, and things in the past. So it's been incredibly insightful, insightful for me, has brought even further awareness for my journey. So thank you for writing that. Thanks very much. You're very kind. And I will be diving deep into that book. You're also the author of Parenting the Screenager, which is uh such an important book for mm. today's world i'm a father myself of a nearly 13 year old girl <laughs> and, <laughs> me, too. Uh, me too snap yeah yeah so it's it's good timing with a book like that i think so many parents need it because parents of this generation have come from a childhood where they weren't exposed to social media or phones or screens to the extent as their Absolutely. children today are like mm. when we were 13 we didn't have phones, we didn't have social media, so it's very difficult for us to manage that with our own kids not having experienced it as our own 13-year-old mm. selves. So I think it's incredibly useful to have that information. So we'll dive into that as well, but I want to sort of bring it back to home is where the start is and bring us back to the start for you as well. Mm. What did home look like for you? Yeah, thanks, Gavin. Um, God, yeah, home for me was... It was very, um, it was like nice and lovely. And my grandmother lived with us for 20 years. That was fabulous to have my grandmother in there. She was a great Irish Cork woman, you know, great crack, great sense of humor. Um, so everything functioned very nicely at times. And we had nice evenings out and there'd be kind of events. And my father wrote for the Irish Times. He was a, a Munster correspondent, so he's pretty well known and all that. So the facade of everything was pretty good. And um, and then in reality, he struggled with addiction. And, and as we got older, we w I watched his life, you know, stumble and then spiral into addiction. And I watched a very talented, very intelligent, very smart, clever guy become disillusioned and and kind of like you know maybe bitter with his life and how it ha how it turned out. And then as a result, we were all along in the ride, you know, on the ride with that. And so it was, it was pretty tough at times and the house could be quite dysfunctional and it could be chaotic and there, 
there could be really you know difficult scenes in the house and I just remember one scene that I wrote in the book that got actually a lot of people wrote to me and a lot of people picked up on when I was saying I was coming through my estate in Grange Aaron where I grew up I, I used to stand on my tippy toes to see if the car was home and if the car was home I'd have a sinking feeling because you don't know what you're going into the environment is un, un, uncertain and it's that uncertainty very hard to live with because then some days it all worked so perfectly. My grandmother would be watching Glen Rowe, my parents the thing, we'd be playing the guitar together, you know, writing songs and it was all just normal. And I suppose that's what was so difficult about the childhood. We could go on summer holidays and it'd be nice going to France and then it could be a chaotic scene in a restaurant in France or a chaotic scene in, in, the, you know, in the holiday home and the whole holiday was spoiled because of what happened, because of alcohol. And I'm not alone as a child who grew up in, a, you know, alcoholic father and uh, struggle with addiction there's a lot of us out there and I suppose that's what really I didn't even think about that when I was writing the book the idea of children from alcoholics I was just telling my story about my father who had addiction and how it impacted my development how it impacted on how I talked to myself how it impacted on what I you know yeah, that voice up there which is the most important relationship any of us have is that voice and how it became corrupted and how I you know I, I struggled a little bit with dyslexia as a kid um, that definitely, you know, just derailed a positive voice up there. And so all of that was feeding into this kind of sense of, um, as I hit my my late teens, I would say melancholy. You know, sadness was kind of definitely wrapped around me like a fog, you know. For a while I was unreachable inside that fog. And it didn't. it took me a long time to figure that out because and I got punished in school I was I got you know labeled as wild and I, and I certainly was well able to get in trouble and you know go on the hop and go into town and go into the arcades and hang around and not take school too seriously I didn't nothing in school had any value for me in primary school sitting there sitting in a prefab and the chalk itself used to drive me insane Gavin you know the sound of the chalk then the dust from the chalk and then Irish I was like what in the name of Christ has this got to my to do with my I used to be looking out the window dreaming about being John Lennon you know that's that's what I was thinking about and they were like Paul Agashila Gimmert Pella and I was like what the fuck has this got to do with me like you know and um, I felt so disconnected from education and, and I struggled with reading and spelling particularly which was weird because I'd, I'd get really good marks in my essays and then I'd struggle with spelling which was I found very strange you know and my brothers were flying ahead and very academic very smart guys brilliant students and all the rest of it and I struggled with it and that label then I suppose was there you know not as good as the others and um, and I definitely told myself that whether I heard or not I definitely told myself that you know and they're the invisible things that create none of us come into this world thinking I'm not that good I'm not that clever I'm not that funny I'm not that nice we developed that from our feedback from our you know environment and all that and um, I certainly picked it up and it wasn't until fifth class that I met this incredible teacher that said to me you know you're very smart and you might have dyslexia too and I was like, fucking hell, yeah, maybe that, is that, is that something, you know, will that be something that's going to get in the way? She's like, yeah, her own brother had it, this teacher called Bridget O'Grady. And, um, and I never told anyone for years, I know I'm a bit rambling and going off in a different case, but I never told anyone for years, you know, I, t I teach English at a high level, you know, in different, and all that. And I love English and you can see from reading the book, I like writing and I write every week for the Irish Examiner, column, you know, for the Irish Examiner, doing that for nearly seven years now whatever and I write my pastime and I've been I wrote Parent and Screen Agent and I've written you know Homos with the Starters was nominated for a, an Irish Book Award and like how, how is that incongruent to dyslexia you know someone who struggles with spelling and words and then as I researched it I was like as a kid this WB Yeats had dyslexia our finest poet you know um, and his handwriting was brutal 
you couldn't make sense of his handwriting. You couldn't make sense of my handwriting. I wouldn't have been able to write that book if I hadn't got a laptop. There's no way I would be able to write a book. I couldn't look at my own handwriting, you know. And um, I wrote an article about it in 2021. Now, that I was 45 or something when I wrote that article. And I have never spoken about it. And I wrote the article in the examiner about my experience growing up with dyslexia. And it was a nice article. And, and I referenced Bridget O'Grady. And I said that she, you know, she changed the trajectory of my life by seeing me. I think that's all any of us want to be witnessed, right? And nobody saw that there was hassle in my house. Or there was, no one saw that there was addiction in the house. No one saw. They were blinded by the veneer of like my father's status. He had a big status in Cork, you know, Munster correspondent for the Irish Times. He'd be on RT News and, you know, writing every week for the Times and all that. And so teachers used to show me his articles, which used to gall me. Like, you know, they'd call me up and say, look at your dad, look what he wrote. And I'm like, you know, oh yeah, brilliant. Last night he was trying, you know, something else was happening in the house, you know. And so that used to kind of gall me. But anyway, I wrote that article and um, I, ref I referenced her. And the next morning I was in my clinic and I had an hour off. When I was on lunch, you know, sitting in my clinic, having an hour off, going to just relax and close my eyes for an hour. And my phone pinged and an email came in and it was from Bridget O'Grady. And it just like, I, I, I was, you know, in... Every time I talk about it, I get a bit emotional. I was back inside the skin of that like eight-year-old who thought of himself as stupid, who saw himself as like, you know, not clever. And I was like, Jesus, that's, that. I was bawling, crying in that clinic for about an hour. I, I couldn't get myself back together. And my mom rang me and she's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I can't fucking talk to you right now. I was just emotionally, because that's, that's what happens to us. We bury all those emotions, you know, and we go off in our lives and we're successful and we do things or whatever it is, but they're all in there. And there are all these invisible things coming from our gener from our family of origin. Our families are messy. I don't think my story is any way more remarkable than anybody else's story. And the amount of emails and handwritten letters I've gotten from that book has been incredible. You know, it's better than anybody book award. It's absolutely incredible to hear somebody say that changed my marriage, that saved my marriage, that changed my life. I, I had one woman ring me saying my husband was dyslexic uh, all his life. And talked to himself so badly. He read your book, and now he's 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 gone to therapy, and he's working on himself. And I was like, Jesus, if if that was it, if that's the one person the book touched, isn't isn't that enough? You know what I mean? And so, we come out of these messy families, Gavin. We've all had them. They and there's loads of invisible forces driving us: our early attachments, how we talk about ourselves, what people said about us, where we came in the family, top, middle, bottom, only child, whatever it is. All of those things are. Um, invisible forces that drive us in our life. And our parents label us, you know, the, the eldest daughter would be the good daughter. I have, I have three daughters myself and I can see myself sometimes saying, you know, that's great, Hannah. I'm, would you mind doing this? I'm telling her she's great so I can get her to, it's manipulative, like, and I can hear myself doing it because I have all the theory in my head as I'm talking. And it's like, geez, that's terrible. But it's like, you know, it's like the event horizon of a, of a freaking, uh, you know, what's it called? Um, what do you call those fucking black holes, you know? It sucks you in. And um, we label our kids not because of badness, because of how complicated the family is. Mm -hmm. So you're the sporty one, and you're the clever one, and you're the lazy one, and you're the wild one. And we break our children down into just such myopic terms. And then they get straightjacketed by those, and they live them out. It's confirmation bias. They look for the confirmation. Yes, I'm not the academic one. The amount of kids I work with in my clinic who say to me, I'm not that book smart. And I say, hold that thought. Let's explore that idea, right? And it's incredible to see them actually kind of go from this position to kind of like actually, you know, sitting back and going, yeah, maybe I have something to offer the world. Mm -hmm. It often takes somebody from outside of the yeah. family oh, yeah, to, to identify the, the gifts that you have, mm. such as Bridget O'Grady. And it's incredible when yeah. someone does it, isn't it? Yeah. 
Oh, it's incredible, yeah. Because they have no skin in the game in your life, you know. Yeah. There's nothing for them. They're not your aunt. They're not your uncle who loves you. Of course. They see something in you. What What was in that email that, that, that floored you? The first line floored me. She said, and I always remember it. I think I put it in the book. I remember you well, Richard. You were a beautiful little boy. That Even as I say that now, I get it, like chills there. Because I didn't think I was a beautiful little boy. I didn't see, you know, when you respond emotionally, I know it's because of something, you know, really deep in there. And I didn't see myself as a little beautiful, I saw myself as a chancer. I saw myself as wild. I saw myself as, you know, trying to deflect what I believed was an in, like an in, intrapsychic problem with me, you know, that I was dumb or stupid. Or I had all those kind of ideas going around, definitely in primary school. Um, in secondary school, it kind of, you know, got, got a bit better because I started to do well in some subjects and that. It wasn't until college when I got a laptop that things changed, you know. And, but I still had the negative voice. I remember I did my first year English exam and um, the university wrote to me, the, the, the Department of English wrote to me to say, you came in the top percentage of the class and we'd like you to keep the subject on. And blah, blah, blah. It was, it was just like, you know, I was really kind of going, oh, yeah. they must be hard up. That was my response. That was my interpretation the of that. The inner critic was, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was the internalized prejudice, you know. Yeah. You could, how could they want you like, you know. And so even when I was getting firsts in my degrees and all that kind of stuff and scholarships and Fulbright scholarships and all, you still have a little voice in there that's that kind of, mm. you know, who are you to do this and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you just got to work it out. You got to listen to it and you got to work it out because it's it's a paradigm that's not fit for purpose and it's going to steal the miracle of you, you know, the, your life, you know, the the incredible magic of you sitting here and me sitting here, 400 quadrillion to the power of 150,000. That's like mathematical terms, almost zero. It should be zero, but it's almost because here we are. Mm -hmm. And so that's magic, you know, to, to be born is incredible magic. Now it gets tainted along the way sometimes because your family and the going to school, into the yard, what people say to you, you take that stuff on and you just like, you know, you, you know, just I watch it all the time. I often think the human brain is not designed for happiness, you know. It's designed for like, you know, suck, you know, going right for something, somebody saying something negative about you and then consuming that and then believing it and then trying to like either bring it into your life, prove it's correct, you know. And that, that stuff is, that is the rotwood of joy, you know. It's mm -hmm. terrible stuff. Tell me about your grandmother and the influence oh, yeah. that she had in your life. Because oh, she was great. She, judging by the book, <clears throat> she seemed to have been your... Your yeah. saviour. She was. She was great. Great crack, you know. And I, and I played so many pranks on her growing up. I remember one day she loved the lottery. And one, one week I recorded the, re the lottery results. And then she said to me, she used to call me Boying. Boying, will you pop up and get the results for me? I said, I, I will. I'll go up and get your numbers for your grand numbers. And I played. It was about three weeks earlier. And I played the, the three week earlier numbers, you know. And then I stuck it in the VHS and left her with the winning ticket. And she came running into the house screaming, we've won the lottery. And so she didn't talk to me for about two weeks. But uh, she was just great crack. Great, really good fun. Like, you know, as a, you know, I remember getting caught stealing light bulbs from a Christmas tree and she bought, the guards bought me home and she opened the door. She's about 74 at the time. And uh, she said, don't worry, guard, I'll, 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 I'll sort out my son for you. And I was like, oh, nice one, Grant. Because <laughs> my father would have killed me if I got caught stealing Christmas tree lights from the Douglas Tree, Christmas yeah. Village Christmas tree. And so she was always like that, like a friend. You know, and she'd say to me, you know, I mean, she wasn't a parent, definitely not. She'd say to me, like, you know, do you want to go to school or not? And I'd say, no, I won't bother. She goes, yeah, sure, you know enough. You're grand. She was born in 1912. Different Ireland. Different ideas about education and all that kind of stuff. But she was just someone I'd go into at night after going to a chipper or whatever, or, you know, two o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, I'd knock on her door and go in. She'd be, how are you getting on by? Did you have a good night? 
she was never someone to say, you know, I'm asleep, leave me alone. She was just always, you know, that kind of like, mm. that kind of person that everyone needs in their life. Someone yeah. who just listens to you and doesn't kind of judge and doesn't give you advice and just, just you know, they're just there. That was, uh, I was drawn in by the story about your grandmother because I had someone, someone similar in my own life. Yeah. It would have been my auntie and again, a savior when my mom and dad would get angry with, with me or mm. did something that was maybe out of turn, trying to do their best for me um, based on the information they had. But <clears throat> anytime that I was punished by mom and dad, my auntie would be there to say, she'd go, you know, I, you know what? They'll laugh about this in a few years' time. Yeah, I know yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. This is a bit of crack. Mm. And she had this sort of rebellious nature that I feel like I've almost taken on in my own life. You know, it's, you know, push against the boundary, yeah. go against the grain, mm. you know, question the status quo. You know, it's, you know, don't take things so seriously. You know, it's not how it is. And even from my own parenting, I can see parts of that coming out mm. as a father to my children as well, where I it's good, you know, it's great. just bring yeah, a bit yeah, of yeah. understanding and no judgment around their behaviors and mm. actions. So yeah, I was, I was very intrigued about the relationship you have with your, with your grandmother. And when she passed then, what sort of void did that create for you in your life? And, and uh, that's the thing about death, isn't it? I mean, it's the profound finality of that, that you'll never hear her voice again. I found that very hard and I have her voice in my head all the time talking to me, you know. She's a good man, Rich. I can hear I can hear her talking to me, you know, and, and calling me. And when my daughter was sick in hospital, my last my last daughter, our youngest daughter, had a rare condition and she was very sick, you know, and uh, we were told it mightn't be viable and all this kind of stuff. And so she was three months in intensive care. I could hear my grandmother going, you, got, you can do this. You'll do this. She'll be fine. Head up, keep going, because that's what she would have said. Just keep going. Can't do anything else. No point thinking about it. Just keep going. And um, yeah, that is, it, it is a hard thing when someone dies, especially when there was meaningful in your life, you know. And then, especially when I had my daughters, I'd love her to see, because she always loved girls. And I could see her going, geez, Richard had all, because my brothers had boys, two boys, four boys between them. And so I could see her going, geez, Richard had girls in the end of the time. <laughs> you know, wasn't it great to bring the girls into the family? And um, so that's, that's the kind of sadness that's always there. That she got to miss out on that, and that you got to miss out to share, miss out and sharing it with her. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she is shining through you as well. Ah, she's, yeah, she's still a lot of love and joy and and uh, resilience yeah. through you. Yeah, I wrote a poem about her. I, I wrote poetry. Like, I remember that line. I said, "Like the star whose light has long since died, you shine on on us." Like it's like that. The idea of the star up there that shines on you see it, but it could be dead and gone, but it's still shining. I said, "That's exactly it." I used to have that idea that she's here. You know, it's through me and her thinking is in how I think and her ideas are how I, you know, how I see the world and her perception is kind of like how I see the world. That's kind of like the great thing about family. Mm -hmm. Then you've got this incredible contrast between mm. her and your father. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You t tell me about him. I could just, as you said that there, I just had an image of my grandmother saying, she had, she had funny English, you know, was it the Irish English, you know, she'd say sentences, you're kind of going, what the, <laughs> do Dick don't like him, do he? I remember she said, I was like, what the hell is that grand as a sentence? She had this old Irish kind of English, you know, broken kind of stuff. But I remember one time my father was shouting at me, in the, shouting at me, do you hear me? Like my grandmother was like, he do, Dick, he do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the way she was. She'd always jump in and yeah. try to, she, she, she was your backup. Yeah, she, she was, was the backup. Support. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it was, I mean, my relationship with my dad was, uh, yeah, it was difficult. There's no doubt about it. At times it became physical um, and there was always a threat of violence there, you know, and you never felt that you would, there wouldn't be something that might happen in any moment. And 
he's a human being who struggled in his family. I, I have no animosity or, you know, anger or any hostility towards him. I can see him as a really talented individual who struggled to achieve his potential and then lost into addiction, which we often do when we're not really happy with ourselves. And I'd say there's probably some other stuff in there as well. And, um, and so he struggled. And then his struggles were our struggles as well as a family, you know. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult relationship for sure. You were angry with him though? Oh yeah, Jesus, yeah. I was very angry with him. And if I met him in my 20s after he left the house, if I was walking on Patrick Street in Cork, it could have been a serious problem, you know. Um, and we had a physical altercation one night um, uh, when I was like 16. That's the start of the book. I talk about going to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist diagnosed me as depressed, right? And pro diagnosis, and you know, pro was um, depression and then his answer to that was Prozac and so at 16 or 17 I was taking Prozac um, I knew I wasn't depressed I'm actually a fundamentally very optimistic and and hopeful and kind of happy guy in a lot of ways right I mean I have my moments like everybody else but um, I knew I wasn't depressed I knew my environment was depressing and I knew that was a difference even at that age you know but my father used to say negative things you know, and comments about me taking medication and um yeah, so that was hard, and they used to make kind of jibes about it and call me the because I used to write, I used to love writing poetry, call me the the black poet and all this kind of stuff, just like these really negative kind of like you know things thrown at you all the time. They'd build up over time, especially when you catch them having an affair and all that kind of stuff. You know, you're kind of I've been putting up with a lot of this all my life. It's kind of like you know, there's the line. You know, that's that's it. I'm not going to put up with that anymore. And so one evening. Um, uh, yeah, he called me a couple of names around, you know, being a dark poet, whatever. And I just told him to, you know, get lost pretty pretty much and whatever. And as I was walking out the door, he punched me into the side of the head. And I was like, right. I was 18, 19. I was like, that's it. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And we got into a physical fight. And um, so I, and I, I knocked him down, right? And it was a weird, you know, it's a weird scene. You know, it's, I, I relived that for so long, you know what I mean? Going around in my mind, going around in my mind, how could I do that? And my grandmother came out of her little room and she was like, Jesus, Richard, what are you doing to your dad? You know, because I was standing over him trying to get up, will you? you know, and all that. And um, she was like, you're going to kill him. You know, you're going to kill him. And it was, a, it was a terrible scene, really. It was a terrible scene, really. A scene that st stayed with me for a long time. And it was all that suppressed anger, though. That just Yeah, it just came out. Yeah. And even my mother, I think, just said, kind of like stepped stood aside, you know, she was like, you know, she just got out of the way of it, you know, because she'd normally jump in the middle of it and, you know, protect, try to save us all from it. And she was trying to protect us all. She was Almost trying, like you needed that yeah, release or that. Absolutely. Well, something had to happen. Yeah. You know, it had to happen because it was, it was, it was a chaotic, at that point, it was a chaotic, it was a car crash kind of family dynamic at that point. It was, it was toxic, to be honest, to, to be in it. And, and it was, it, it disturbed me for sure, my peace and my joy in myself. But um, yeah, so that, that that took a while to get over that. When I met my girlfriend who became my wife really was the time I started to kind of start to heal that stuff. And I was always very careful, Gavin, about who I would actually end up with. I was, that was a weird thing, you know. I had a lot of girlfriends when I was, you know, in my teens and my 20s and all that. But um, they wouldn't have thought it or anybody who was around me wouldn't have thought it. But I was very careful about who I dated. Why? Because I didn't want to, I, I knew I had the capacity to replicate chaos, you know. I knew I had the, the the potential to go into alcohol and the potential to be dysfunctional and the potential to meet somebody who's dysfunctional and then live in that dysfunction for the rest of your life. I knew that was a trajectory that was very fucking easily 
um, you know, gone into. How, how did you have that awareness I, at I such was, a young age? Yeah, I, I was always interested in psychology. I was carrying out psychological studies on my family for years. In, in the book, I tell the story about doing prolonged teasing and taunting where I was tormenting my brother. Mm. I was trying to see their... <laughs> their the triggers. Yeah. yeah, their triggers and how they respond to stimulus and all that. It ended one day with me getting a black eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, that's the end of the study. <laughs> But um, but I was always like that. I was always looking at lives, and I was always interested in people's stories. And I was always interested in like I, I, when I was fourteen, I'd say I interviewed my grand. I set up like this kind of a system. I got a camera and I got a dictaphone, and I she told me her whole life story over two days. And I was always interested in what kind of question would kind of bring something out here. So I was always interested in questions, mm -hmm. which is psychotherapy, you know. And I was always interested in people, and I, I've never lost that. I love listening to older people in their lives. And the moment where their lives, you know, became something or something came into their lives or those real moments of like, you know, change in your life. My grandmother used to tell me even when I was young, you know, she, that when she was she was going out one night, her friend said, come on, we go out. And she said, no, she wasn't interested in going to this dance. Mick Delahunty and his band, his show band. And she was like, I'm not, I'm not interested. And her friend said, come on, I'll flick the coin. And she flicked the coin, like, you know, and in that moment, my life comes to being because it landed in heads. And she went into the dance and met her husband. You know what I mean? It's just like, it could have yeah, been freaking yeah. tails and <laughs> I disappear. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. And I'm really interested in all of that kind of stuff. You know, I'm really interested in people's stories, how they see themselves, how they view themselves and uh, how they talk to themselves um, and how you can overcome. Because I was thinking about how do I overcome this stuff? Mm. You know, how do I, how do I, I wasn't living my t potential. At, at 22, I kind of dropped out of college to mind my grandmother because she broke her hip. So I just, I was her care for two years. Um, and then I went back into college again. But I certainly wasn't, you know, focused on myself. Mm -hmm. You know, my early 20s where I should have been. I was focused on my mom and my grandmother and my dad and that scenario. And, you know, I was I was consumed by that stuff, you know. Were you, were you trying to somewhat keep the family together or try to manage the family in some way? Well, when I, I discovered his affair, you see, and um, I didn't tell anyone for a while. Didn't know what to do with that information. And... Um, I was trying to, I wasn't somewhat trying to keep him together. I was trying to keep him, keep, protect my mom, I think, for sure, you know, and try to keep her safe from this. But it was bigger than all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. And how did you begin to process the uh, anger towards your father? How did you start that process of forgiveness? Well, I didn't talk to him for 10 years after that fight that my last conversation was like beating, having a fight with him, like, you know. And, um, I didn't talk to him for 10 years and I lugged around that fight for 10 years. And I hated him for a lot of those 10 years, you know, and I was angry with him. And then you see, there's, it's weird because I respected him so much as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I respected him. So, you know, it's your dad, of course, everybody respects their dad. Um, you're born to do that. And that one day I was, myself and my wife were talking about kind of getting married and that kind of stuff, building a life together, you know, she was, she was really the changing point of my life, you know, Erica. And um, just a really good, decent, solid, beautiful person, you know, who sees you for all your mess. And all your potential as well. Just as your grandmother did? Yeah, exactly. And my grandmother's funny, cause exactly. That's, I never thought about that, actually. It's an interesting point. I often think she reminds me of my grandmother. My mother would say that to me sometimes. She reminds you of grand because she's a great sense of humor yeah. and she doesn't take herself too serious. But you wouldn't see that sense of humor unless you were in, you know, unless she was comfortable with you, if you know what I mean. Um, but my grandmother used to always say to her when she turned up first as my girlfriend back in 2002 or whatever, my grandmother would lean into her and say, you'll get married. 
And Erica never told me she was saying that to her, you know, you'll get married now. And I used to turn at my grand, like, and I'd say, she'd say, how's Erica? I'd say, oh, sure, I broke up with her grand. Well, I'm onto someone new, just to annoy her. Yeah, She's yeah. like, you will not. She, you'll never meet a nice girl like yeah, her. She knew. She knew. She knew yeah, 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 she knew. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She knew. You found your woman, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because her grandfather said the same about me when I turned up. He said, he'll look after Erica now. He'll be, good, he'll be a good guy for her to yeah. look after, yeah. So going back to the question. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's all good. What was the question there again? <laughs> How did you begin to process the... Oh, yeah. Like, um, father? I was watching the Rory Gallagher. This is a weird intro to that. I was watching the Rory Gallagher in 1974. I know you claim him up in Donegal, but he's a cork man. Uh, right? no, I don't know. We'll have our arguments with that. We do have a Rory Gallagher. I know you do. Yeah. Yeah. Shannon, you, know? you got in there first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, um, so I was watching the 1974 tour because I love Rory Gallagher. He's like, my dad knew him and all that. He would be ringing the house when I was a kid, you know, he's coming back from a Jap Japanese tour. And I'd say, dad, Rory Gallagher rang looking for you because my dad was like the, you know, big interviewer of, uh, in, in, in Cork at the time. And um, my dad was interviewing him in the in the product in the seventy four documentaries in Crowley's music shop, interviewing him. And I, I became emotional watching it, you know, because I was proud of him and then angry with him. And I was like, okay, we're talking about getting married and we're talking about having kids, you know, and we're talking about building a future here. And I was like, I got to work this stuff out. If I want to build a healthy future and I want to become the person I want to become, I need to work this stuff out because I never even talked to my wife about it. She wouldn't ask me about it. She knew not to ask me about it. My girlfriend at the time, you know, she wouldn't ask me about it. It was kind of like a, an elephant around us and I wouldn't speak about it. You know, all my brothers got married. He wasn't at the wedding. There's no conversations about him. All the kids don't talk about their grandfather. It was all this absence, you know, but, um, so I reached out, I contacted his brother, who I knew, and I said, look, I'm looking to talk to Dick. Can you give me his number? So he gave me his number, and I met him in the Shelburne there in 2009. It was, two, it was 1998, I think, when I had a fight with him that time. So, yeah, I went in to meet him. But I had no expectations, Gavin, you know what I mean? I, I kind of knew the person I was meeting. And um, it wasn't any way, you know... What I, what I had hoped for was kind of like, I'm sorry, but I kind of knew that wouldn't come either. You know, I, I kind of had to match, watch my expectations there. And I, yeah, so I didn't really talk to him again about four or five years after that en encounter. Because you didn't get what you wanted? Or was no. there a certain expectation there? His, his girlfriend, who he had the affair with, was sitting in the corner and I was like, I had to control my anger, right? <laughs> I'll be honest now. I had bad. I had a bad temper when I was in my teens, twenties, which I, you know, struggle with sometimes still, right? Um, and so, I was like, I could tell, turn this fucking table over here, you know. And there's the woman that he denied he was having an affair with sitting over there, and we're meant to be having a moment of reconciliation and a deep talk, and she's sitting over there watching me in this conversation. I was like, uh, but I didn't. Say, that was in my mind. I didn't say that. I just had the conversation and I left, and I didn't talk to him again for about four years. Was, too, was it? Was it too soon? Uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. I wasn't probably ready for the, all, the, all of that. Now I'd go to his house and I'd bring him. He's in a wheelchair and all that. No, you know, and his, his girlfriend is there and she's in a wheelchair as well. And, you know, so it's, it's no issue. I wouldn't have any feelings around that at all. But, um. So, so how, how did you get there? I think it was through, um, psychotherapy, really. Um, it was through. The masters that I did was a, a four-year masters in family psychotherapy, where you have to explore your family. And I remember the first, and I got annoyed about it. You do genograms in your family therapy training, which I have in the book there. Mm -hmm. And you put up my family tree, and I was saying about my father. And one of the head of the school said, "Maybe your father's not as bad as you think he is." And I was like, "This is the first time anyone's ever said something like that to me." And I was like, 
kind of ready to challenge her. I was like, you know, you haven't lived in my life. You don't know what it's been like, you know. And um, I went, but I, I, I consumed that idea. And I started to think about it. And I started to think about him as a human being. And I started to think about him as a person who came through his family and his system and his parents and how they treated him and how he felt in his family and then his talent and then the loss of talent and then the loss of potential, the bitterness and then the alcohol. And that's a feckin' perfect storm to warp a personality. And so I started to see him in all his complexity, Gavin, rather than this kind of, you know, linear bad guy that I had for a long time. Maybe he was a guy who struggled. Maybe he was a guy who had mental health issues, you know, and used alcohol, which is fucking bonfire fuel here, you know, to satiate that. And he certainly did, you know, and um, so then I understood him a bit more. It's very hard to hate someone when you see the complexity of the person. It's very easy to hate someone. You say you're gobshite because this, right? But it's very hard when you remove that, you know, linear myopic viewpoint of somebody. You start seeing someone in the complex, the matrix of complexity that they came from and who they are. And then the good sides of that person as well, because I have his personality in me and I have some of him in me for sure. And I see it and I see the creativity and I see the kind of like, you know, the the intellect and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, that was a gift there for sure. Yeah, Thank you, Dad. Yeah, thank you for that one. Absolutely. I appreciate that genetic code. It's a fucking great privilege to have it. Um, and I love it. And yeah, and so all of a sudden I moved from this angry position to an, a position of, Forgiveness and understanding. Empathy? Yeah, empathy. Absolutely empathy. And not wanting him to say sorry or not needing. I'd like him to say sorry. I'd love him to say, look, that was shit and I'm really sorry and I struggled with alcohol and, you know, I shouldn't have done that to you kids and I, I, I thought about myself. I'd love to hear that. I mean, that would be a bit cathartic, but I don't need it, you know, and I don't, and I don't look for it in our relationship. And we'd, we'd meet and we'd talk once in a while there, you know, I'd go down to Cork and I'd bring my daughters to see him and all that kind of stuff. And, I know it's a thrill for him to meet my daughters and it's nice for him to kind of talk to them and they chat away to him and gives him a little bit of joy in the world. And I'm like, that's kind of, for me, it's kind of good. Yeah. I love your uh, genogram. And yeah. the, 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 as you put it, the matrix of yeah. what creates the personality. Absolutely. And uh, it's something, I, and, I, and the reason why I'm speaking about the anger towards your father, I think it's something that, dare I say, every man from this generation has experienced or is experiencing mm. because they come from a father who's been sort of emotionally shut down, yeah. hasn't, been, hasn't been present with them, has come from a, a childhood where emotions were not allowed to be expressed and therefore suppressed. And he transfers that pain from his childhood or from his father mm. onto him. And from now you get it from your father, you know, mm. it's, it's sort of passed from generation Absolutely. to generation. And that's why I love the genogram because you can actually see how this trickles down onto, oh, yeah. the, onto you. Yeah. And uh, it's something I've done in my own life. And I think it's very important for every man to, for me, I know this, this is what helped to, to, to see your father as the child yeah. that he was. Absolutely. Yeah. And what his life was like yeah. back then. Mm. And I think we have a problem in our society of um, a lack of male role models. You know, I, I never had a male role model, to be honest. Sylvester Stallone. What? <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who they were, been, they who were mine, been, anyway. Who would have been mine uh, from the movies? <laughs> so, <laughs> Arnie Schwarzenegger, maybe, or uh, what was his name? The guy in um, uh, John Claude Van Damme. John Claude, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, or Bruce Willis or something. Yeah. But, I never, but they're not present with you. No, I mean, they're, 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 they're almost like fantasy figures. No, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. not real. And uh, I've really felt that. A lot of times in my life. I think I a lot of men do. Yeah, I felt yeah. isolated and like, 
where is this bloody role made? Someone to tell me, show me the light here. How do you be a boy and how do you be a man and what's been a good man and what's that like? And I had I had loads of men there, you know, but none of them were, you know, something that you kind of go, well, there's a good there's a good example of what you can be as a as a man. And I think boys today still need, you know, really need that. Like, and we we need it in, in our society. Really good, upstanding men who are proud of being a man and proud of their masculinity and proud um, of the kind of positive force that they put into the into into the world there. And we need more of it. I think it's a huge problem. Do you think it's still lacking? I do, yeah. I think it's better. Mm. I, I, when I drop my daughters to school and I see all the dads there, I think that's brilliant. You know, that's where I see it's, it's changing there for sure. Um, and I think the, the role of, you know, of dad and the role of being a guy has changed dramatically over the years. And I think it's, uh, it's very positive. I think we have to do more of talk about our, you know, opening up and talking and, and talking about our feelings. I think it's a very important part of um, the male journey. What's the barriers there at the moment? Um, to being to be in this role model, being this 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 masculine figure that well, society needs. Something I often talked about. I never liked the term toxic masculinity because I thought it actually. And I work in schools all the time. I thought it gave boys the the belief that they're inherent. There's something inherently wrong with them, and that it's not good to be a boy, and that they should be kind of somehow shameful of being a boy. And what I'd say to them when I'm talking to them that there's cultural ideas that are not good for you. It's not that masculinity is toxic per se. It's that there's cultural ideas that have come down, residual ideas to our societies that say boys don't cry, grow up hair, you know, man up, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I said, that's not helpful. They're, they're cultural ideas and maybe ideas around masculinity is about dominance and subjugation and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'd say, well, all of that's not, not exactly masculinity. Masculinity is, is strength for sure, but it's other, there's other aspects to masculinity too. And so you can be masculine and you can be sensitive and you can be, uh, you know, feeling and you can also celebrate the fact that you um, are strong and, and you believe in strength and all that kind of stuff, but that you're also um, sensitive. And I think we, we we lacked that message with kids, and I thought the toxic masculinity message was negative, and I, I and I could see it in schools. And interestingly enough, actually, just to tell you this quick one, it changed my perspective on it. Uh, a member of the trans community came up to me and said to me that she was born a girl, right, and that uh, all her life, now his life, um, wanted to be a boy, and loved the idea of masculinity. And he said to me that um, when toxic masculinity became this really powerful, you know, word out there. That it almost, it, when it did, it really tainted what he had become because he had he had been desiring masculinity all his life, and now he was told that that was inherently wrong, and there was something wrong about. It. And I said, that, that's such a unique perspective mm -hmm. on that, you know. And I was like, well, that's what I see happening with boys, is that they don't actually know what their role in society is, and do we want to isolate? That's what I was saying to people because I got criticised for saying. It. I was like, well, does toxic masculinity is a term? Does it connect boys to anything positive, or does it isolate them and make them feel inherently bad? And if you looked at those two and you'd say, well, of course, it's the latter one there. So let's let's think about cultural ideas that are maybe toxic and how not teach that to our sons and our brothers and our fathers and all that and how to be more positive about being masculine so then we feel more connected to something. You know? Love it, man, because uh, this is something I'm very passionate about and I deem the term toxic, mas toxic masculinity as just a bullshit buzzword that's been used to shame men because... As you rightly put it, if men feel ashamed for being a man, they're going to suppress those manly traits. And when it's suppressed, it's going to express itself in other destructive ways in their life. 
such as mm. writing on the streets, or yeah, yeah. such as graffiti in the wall, or such as creating some sort of damage in the relationships. Or so, yeah, it's it's the suppression of that. But the, I think the suppression as well is created through confusion as to okay, well, how, what is it I meant to be here? How yeah. do I act as a man? Yeah, what yeah. am I supposed to do? So, uh, what's what, what's your sort of opinion on a man in today's society? Like, what, what if if someone asked you, what does it mean to be a man? Uh, geez, it's, it's a tough question and I'm really thinking about the rioters because I've got loads of things about I feel yeah. so sorry I, f I actually people would give out to me for saying it but when I see that first of all before I get to answer that question I see children lost in the state <laughs> yeah you know what I mean I was I actually going that's to that's say I see. the same thing it's, I, see the, I, I don't see men no, on the streets I, I see, see lost boys I who see, have been ridiculed yeah, by the system yeah, and just completely isolated uh, and I'm talking about and I'm, and I'm even talking about the, say the teenage rioters who are going into JD Sports and, and everyone's saying that they're like you know scum and scrotes and lunatics the language that was being used and I'm like Jesus and I, I, it's actually I have an article coming out tomorrow about that and I was like if I was 15 I'm being honest and I try to be honest but if I was 15 and my parents were lost into heroin use and my parents were cognitively impaired let's say they can't rear me there's no support there the state doesn't care about me there's no one asking am I going to school I'm at home playing PlayStation all day long smoking joints and whatever and someone texts me and says we're done in JD Sports you want to come down and get some shoes I think I'd cycle down and get some, you know, mm -hmm. if you're being honest, like, you know, if you do, if you're so disconnected from society and you're so powerless in a society, this is your only exertion of power. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so to, to label them as scrotes and of course their behavior needs to be punished. I'm not saying that, but it, there is context and there is an under, there, there does require an understanding of it. And when I hear politicians calling them lunatics and all that, I'm going, well, that's further, you know, that's exclu just, just exclusion. another label. Like it's just toxic masculinity. It's like, okay, they're, they're just, they're just toxic. Let's not, let's yeah. not explore that. You can't help them like, at all. Yeah. And that's brilliant then for society because then you're saying that you're, you're beyond help. Mm -hmm. And what I'd always say is I, have, I did a PhD in, in, inclu in inclusion and I think we're very good at including certain minorities, right? We're, I think we're very good at that in this country and we celebrate it and, and, and rightly so we should, right? But I think kids who are coming from you know, economically deprived backgrounds who don't go to school, whose parents are in addiction more than likely and their parents can be cognitively impaired you know, I, I work a lot with the Guardian. and I talk with the Guardian a lot and the parents can be cognitively impaired. And so we'd say, where are the parents? The parents are incapable of actually rearing these children and giving them morals and values and all that kind of stuff. And so they're lost. No one's talking about like, let's think about including those kids. There's no policies around including those kids. They're like just off in the flats. No one's thinking about what do we do here? They're just thinking, how do we contain it? How do we keep them out of sight? You know, how do we kind of get them some way, you know, pacify them somehow. And it's like, no, they, that's, that's, that's how you solve this problem that we have currently. You get these children, you include them. You know, you've got good policies around getting them back into, into different programs, whether it's education or not. You know, it's not for everybody because you don't come up in a family that privileges education, but you get them into programs. You get them using their hands, you know, and I do a lot of work um, with some, you know, a lot of work with teenagers who are on that, you know, on the verge of going into criminality, like, and what do they want? They only want to work with their hands. They want to see the product of something, you know, they don't want to go down into college or anything like that. And they want to get out there and work. And it's like, we need, we need to start promoting that so that we don't have what yeah. we saw there in our streets, which was, I thought the exertion of like, uh, you know, a, a powerless child trying to show that they have some power in the system mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Instead of you create, instead of destruct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You create, be creative. And you can be creative in our society rather than destruct our society because both of those things are expression of something, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you feel like you're never going to be creative, I think you'll probably be destructive. Yeah. But then the re reaction response to that will just push them further. Yeah, away. exactly. Well, calling them lunatics and scrotes and scumbags 
is just a, a, that's confirmation for them from the, how the system perceives them and they're like I'm glad you kicked your fucking JD Sports in I'm glad that yeah. you know we burned, the, we burned the Lewis there because look how you talk about us and I, I'm not excusing that behaviour so please don't hear me saying that I'm, that, that behaviour is, is terrible and it needs to be punished but the behaviour is the behaviour the child is the child mm-hmm. you know and we need to kind of get in there to, to, to help the child so that the behaviour doesn't come apart at the yeah. child you know? It's like that's the surface level yeah, reaction, exactly. but beneath there, there's a, there's a deeper, way deeper source. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we need to go. And, mm. and again, it goes back to the necessity for strong role models yeah. in, in society today. Uh, absolutely. We all need strong role models, you know, and um, that's it. I mean, we absolutely need people who are upstanders and kind of like, you know, lead the way and be honest and authentic about themselves and, you know, talk about what life's like for you and your struggles and all that kind of stuff. And so when someone sees you as successful or whatever and they hear, oh, actually maybe, you know, he's like everybody else. And that's why I kind of wrote the book because get, I get positioned as an expert, you know, and I have some expertise for sure, but it didn't come up in a vacuum and I certainly didn't come up in, you know, it, it, you know, it was a family like a lot of families out there. There was addiction in it and there was struggles and there was joy. There was love. There was all of that complicated stuff, you know? That's what I love about your book as well, because um, you've got a story and I've gone through a lot of therapy with different therapists and different psychologists. And what I find, what I find with them or found with them, with, with most of them, especially psychologists or psychotherapists, is that they're very closed off mm. and it's almost like they're in a pedestal and you're below them. And I'm here to, to listen to you and fix your problems. And my life is all grandiose and I've got my shit in order but when you hear your story it's like this guy's got fucking skin skin in the game here <laughs> yeah. like this guy knows life and he knows struggles and he knows strife and he knows broken down families and mm. alcoholism and addictions and afflictions and all that comes with it so it makes you a lot more of a of, of a relatable individual it's funny that you say that Kevin because I just as you were saying that I was thinking of my of my lecturers when I was doing systemic family psychotherapy you know it was intense four years uh, brilliant brilliant lecturers in UCD and Matter Hospital we used to have a one way mirror and all the lectures behind there and you'd have like say a conversation there'd be a phone there it was like something from the matrix and it's all this family psychotherapy systemic theory you know and so we were talking and then the phone would ring and the therapist out here the trainee the, the, the supervisor would say ask Gavin this or I see I noticed that Gavin did that when you okay thank you very much and so it's like the whole system. The whole theory is that once you're in fam- once you're in therapy, you're you're connected to each other. So it's like you need, you need VAR somehow to kind of like watch the, over yeah. it to see the dynamics kind of going on because you get pulled into the dynamic, right? Yes. But what I what my lecturers always said to me, Richard, you know, stop with the self disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah. I don't think I would want to sit in front of someone who I think is cardboard or is perfect life or has not lived, as you said, has not got some skin in the game, doesn't understand what it is you know, to be mm-hmm. a father or doesn't understand what it is to, you know, struggle or doesn't understand what it is to feel shit about yourself. Uh, you know, I, I kind of... It really sets you apart, man. I yeah. have to say that because I've had my experience with um, a lot of psychologists and, psych- and psychotherapists that, again, there's a disconnect there because you're all, although you could be with this person for, and I've been with people for almost two years and I, I still couldn't tell you anything about their life. Yeah. And so it's. I don't believe in that. You see, I'm like more like Carl Rogers type of thinking, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't on our course. But it was interesting at the end of my training. I remember we had our one last session, and all the therapists were there. I remember they come in, they were like, "That self disclosure you do there is just incredible. How do you do that?" 
And I just thought, yeah, I, I, I always believed in that. And when I was teaching at school, I was never like the dispenser of like, knowledge. I was like, this is a knowledge is kind of flowing between us. And I don't know all, all the answers here. And the kids used to get a great buzz out of like, you know, just like, and I tell them stories about my life, whatever, when they'd know about you and they'd feel connected to you. That's when you fucking learn. Yeah. That's when you leave your guard down in therapy. Why do you think you've, you've gone that direction? What sort of, um, I needed it myself. Yeah. I needed that person myself. That's all. That's yeah. I, I know that from my. You needed to be heard. Yeah. I needed someone to kind of be like that with me and I was never there. And so I was kind of going, right. I remember, I remember feeling this, you know, I always had, I always had dreams of being like, you know, in the Beatles. You know, if I'm, I always had dreams of like, you know, music and I played music and played the guitar and wrote songs and all that. So I'd always had that kind of like, you know, I'm going to Hamburg and I'm going to become the next Beatles. And I remember sitting in class and I was probably 16. And I remember thinking, just sitting there going, no, your, your thing is helping people. I remember kind of thinking, shit. <laughs> be honest, yeah. Almost like a vocation, you know, where you get told yeah. you're going to be the priest, kind of. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, sh yeah. But you knew it within yourself. I knew it within myself. Yeah. I had that moment of it. You'd like, be wasted on the Beatles. So you yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or I'd be dead by now, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, yeah, no, I was like, no, that's actually it. And then once I started kind of moving towards that, it was like, fucking everything opened up. Yeah. So you yeah. sort of, um, are you a believer of going all in on something? Yeah, I am. Yeah. How do we how do we encourage that with boys or men who are unsure as to what to go uh, Yeah, I always think, yeah, well, you, how do you know what to go in on? I always think there's signs, you know. You know, there's always signs there telling you, kind of things open up a little bit. I just know for me when I was, you know, when I got into psychotherapy, um, very quickly I had a collium. I mean, try to get that. I don't know how that happens, really, to be honest. And then out of that, I had TV work. And then out of that, I had other TV work. And then out of that, I had radio work. And it's just like, it all opened up out of kind of like nowhere really for me. And I was like, God, that was incredible. It just like kind of happened. And I was, and the feedback I was getting, even just last, yes, just yesterday, a lovely moment happened. I get these moments quite often. The bu door buzzed to my clinic, you know, and I was on a 20 minute break. I was just been being clients and 20 minutes, the door buzzed and this lady was standing at the door. And she's like, is this the therapy institute? And I was like, yeah, no, it is, yeah. She's like, are you Richard Hogan? And I was like, I am. She's like, I just want to tell you how much I love you. And I was like, oh, Jesus, thanks for it. She's like, she was like, I'm a psychiatrist. I was a psychiatrist my whole life. It's sort of so refreshing to hear someone talk about themselves working in counseling. And I was like, thank you so much for, I was like, you've really cheered me up. I was wrecked tired. I was like, you've given me great energy, you know, for the rest of the day. And I was just like, that's kind of the feedback that you get sometimes, you know, sometimes you might hear something negative about a stance that you might have on toxic masculinity or whatever it is, or about anything. I write about all sorts of things. So you get some negative feedback and that's, that's part of the game. But, um, I think you get signs, Gavin. I think things like that happen, you know, where you kind of go, right, I'm, I'm kind of on where I'm meant to be. I think I'm in my stride here, this is what I need to be doing, you know, and, uh, you know, and I, and I always believe that if you want to see change, like that Gandhi idea, you have to be that change. And sometimes it's hard. It could be easier not to look for the change. Like I'm launching the pornography petition and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's something that I'm very passionate about and I want to see that change happen. It's a slog and, and you're kind of like, you know, trying to get this thing to government and trying to get them to change, to get legislation around it to kind of protect your children. I just think it's a it's a it's a fight that we can't not take, you know. That was uh, opens up the next avenue for me very yeah. nicely here because I was thinking about the uh, I was thinking about a few things there that we've discussed so far in terms of toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. about the suppression of feelings and emotions, about that then being expressed in destructive ways. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we can take the riots in Dublin and say that's like an extreme case of anger and bitterness and resentment being expressed, but 
I also believe it's happening on a somewhat minor scale, although it's quite major too, through pornography. Yeah, no, it is. I think it's a, it's a, it's it's bigger than minor for sure, right? I think it's a it's a serious ill in our society. It se- it seems minor because it's not. All over the news. It's a taboo. It's, not, yeah. it's a complete taboo. No one's talking about it. And I'm, uh, you know, and I've been saying it for a long time. And, you know, if you ever want evidence of what this stuff does, if you ever watch Ted Bundy's last interview before he's executed, um, you could say, okay, this is a guy trying to, like, you know, excuse himself from abhorrent evil behavior, but he's got nothing left. He's going to be executed. And he said, when I'm in jail here, and paraphrasing him here, he said, I, all the men I meet who perpetrate violence or who have desires of violence towards women, he said, all of them share a common interest in pornography. He said, that's where, he said, pornography came into my life and it warped how I view women. Now, he's obviously pathological. There's something seriously wrong with Ted Bundy there. But he's saying that pornography was, for him, a a fucking fuel, you know. And I'm like, that's what I see. If the kid's got a seed of vulnerability, a seed of pathology in there, and you throw pornography. Most kids can watch pornography and not become, you know, perpetrators of crimes against women. Mm. But we have got too much violence in our society against women. We have to look at that and say, well, was it 259 women in the last, you know, whatever, 10 years? It's, it's, a, it's a staggering statistic. I work with the guards, coercive control, serious problem, a major problem. And, and women obviously coercive control male too, but, you know, it's more physically dominating when a man does it, obviously. And so we have that. And then we have Anna Kriegel case, right? We have where boy A consumed bestiality and BDSM. I mean, we have just case after case after case after case. And we have guys consuming, getting lost into pornography. And that's a fantasy world where women are dehumanized. And, and you know, any conversation around this has to be embedded in the socio-cultural context of that pornography propagates negative ideas that women want consent taken from them. There's the problem for me, right? That a, a I worked in a school recently where this a senior infant had consumed pornography. You know what I mean? You're, and you're kind of going, it's dystopian. Six, six yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Scary stuff. Like, And I'm, I'm listening to this all the time because I sit on the, on the, I'm the chairperson of, of a national advisory council for schools. And so I sit on this board where there's about 15 schools from all, all over Ireland feeding into me all the issues that are going on. And then I'm right, trying to write programs to help with those issues, right? And so I'm hearing all the time about the, the issues. Pornography is the one that keeps coming. Schools, you know, children on their phone. Um, I've worked with children drawing pornographic images, you know, in their, in their copies and they're only like eight or nine. I've worked with kids who are saying terribly pornogra- pornographic and graphic things to their mother. And I've worked with so many cases where like a young boy, his older, his older cousin comes into the house and shows him pornography and he's disturbed from what he's seen. Because in my day, Gavin, I don't know about your day. I think I'm a bit older than you here. I think I'm thinking where you're going here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Pornography was like Channel 18 we had in Cork where it was all a story. Some guy, some guy drops a pizza over and there's girls in the thing and you know, it's all this kind of like fluff and it's, it's kind of like, you know, light pornography it's not hardcore and extreme but that's not what pornography is today and I'm not a prude you know I'm not a prude I'm I'm saying about there's a serious problem here and I see it across as a clinician I see it across the the strata of society I see it like you know kids and I see it warping their ideas around you know you know consent and I see them warping their ideas about like what women want and how to how to even be physical with a woman or you know to be intimate with a woman I, I can see them really struggling with that right and I can see girls also struggling with what they, they've consumed by accident or by purpose but it's embedded into all aspects but I also see it in couples therapy massively you know young couples starting out in their marriage heading off into the future the great unknown 
but you know one of them generally in my experience the guy is stuck in pornography and intimacy's gone and they're only like a year or two married and intimacy's gone and I've worked with so many families where they broke down and the family was just you know collapsed because the father had gone off into pornography and I've worked with Ruama and I work with Women's Aid and I've heard I've worked with women who've been trafficked into the sex industry and I've heard their stories you know and I've chatted with them and they'd say all of their clients had commonality and that was pornography that they were coming to kind of mimic what they'd seen. They can't mimic it with their partner. They've come to this situation to mimic it with somebody that they don't value. I mean, somebody trafficked into sex, that's just for me to use. And so it's a, it's an industry that's been fed there by, it doesn't seem like it, but it's been fed by pornography. And we have to protect our children. It's not an option to say a six-year-old can just go onto an, an, an iPad or a, sna- a smartphone and put in porn and fucking, you know, anything comes up. You know, do we, is that what we want our children, particularly our boys, to consume? We want them to have healthy, intimate relationships with people. Mm-hmm. You know, we want them to be fu- like thriving in their lives. And does pornography, from your experience, help you to thrive? No way. I mean, <clears throat> I was that man who was lost in porn in yeah. a relationship. And I struggled with porn from the age of 13. And it was a very secretive, shameful place because... You know, um, sex was such a taboo yeah. topic and subject whenever I was younger, 13, you know, back in the 90s. And um, it was not something I spoke about to anyone. And, you know, even the term, you know, wanker, you know, mm. from, from your friends, like, yeah, oh, you're yeah. a wanker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do wank. Yeah, um, yeah. And so do you. But <laughs> nobody's, you know, admitting. No one's talking about Nobody's having a discussion yeah, yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, so yeah. again, you just suppress, suppress, suppress. And it's expressing itself again through these destructive avenues of porn. And... It's it does break down the intimacy in relationships and you no know, porn was massive in my teens and early twenties and and what would happen as well is that I had these type of expectations when it came to intimate intimate yeah. situations with women. Well, it ruined intimacy. And because when you watch a porn, it's like heroin, and then yeah. you go for a pint. Sex is about exactly. Like a pint. But it's like you're, you're viewing something, and then you believe that that's how it's going to play out in reality. Again, this was back when I was 16, 17, into my early twenties, and you believe that, oh, okay, I'm supposed to show up in the bedroom here. I get instantly hard, and we're going to have amazing sex, and you know she's going to have an orgasm, and great. And you go into this situation, and you have this already. Or I speak about myself already feeling extremely anxious about the situation mm. because you have all these expectations, expectations you yeah. put on yourself. Well, there's loads then, of research into it about ED, you know, erectile dysfunction. Yeah, that, that, and that's a part yeah. of it. But the, the thing about it then is because it doesn't happen in the real life intimate in, scenario. Exactly, it's not as You begin thrilling. to use the porn all the more, more because yeah. that, that just replaces it. Yeah. And being in a situation where I have been several times when I was a teenager where nothing was happening, I couldn't perform, more shame. Because she reacts in a, a negative way, she and she she feels rejected. She embeds a further level of shame, and I say, "Well, I'm, that that's fucking painful. I'm not going back there again in that real life scenario. So I'll just spend more time over here in porn, and it's safe here, and there's no no fear of rejection." Or oh, yeah, what would you say to that 13 year old Gavin? <sighs> if you could get him now as he's going into that addiction, what would you say to him? I, I, I would tell him that whatever he's feeling is is okay and normal, and that it's how he sees it through a screen is not how it is in reality. And that before it ever gets to that stage in a relationship with a woman or ever gets to the stage of sex, that you have such an incredible 
connection outside that work on building such an mm. incredible connection outside of the bedroom yeah with, some, you with your partner like, connect yeah, 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 intimately yeah, physically, yeah. in the bedroom you know take your time with it be patient find someone it's you a trust really important message for boys to hear isn't it find someone you trust because there's all this like hookup culture as mm. well and that's just another that's just porn as well you just you hook up with a woman you go you, you have sex see you later and there's no skin in the game there's no commitment there's no there's nothing there it's emptiness so I, I don't think anything will bring you closer to like a, a, the emptiness at the heart of the human condition, the emptiness, the solving emptiness, as Philip Larkin would call it, that lies under everything that we do is having a hookup with someone that there's no connection and emotional, uh, you know, between them, between you, you know, there's no, there's not, it's just like mm -hmm. that. I think nothing brings you closer to emptiness. Yeah, it is empty. And again, that's where that it's like, it's almost as if porn was like an evolution for me, like where I started with the the, the VHS tapes and you fast mm. forward to mm. the internet bit and that that became that that, that was then transferred onto magazines and Euro Trash, if you remember Euro oh, Trash. Geez, yeah, I used to love Euro Trash. <laughs> yeah, and Jean Claude, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. French dude there, yeah. yeah. Those those uh born That was porn when I was uh, That was porn, yeah. Like, yeah those yeah, like yeah. women naked on TV. Yeah, it's like holy yeah, fuck yeah. what's this and then Lola uh, Ferrari or That's <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And then came the internet and that yeah. opened up a other avenue and it's, it's it's almost like it was an evolution and for me it got to the peak of like being in webcam chat rooms where nobody knew me but uh, I was receiving all this validation and mm. attention and it was in incredibly thrilling but it was also an escapism from a reality that I was dissatisfied in oh, but yeah. was why a, was it dissatisfied? It was avoidance Yeah like, but yeah. why was it dissatisfied? Because yeah. I wasn't working mm. on any aspects of my reality I was, I was avoiding the difficulties I was avoiding the challenges of the relationship i was avoiding my own internal pain because mm. all that's fucking difficult that's 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 tough so i'll just go over here and have a great time but then but, but, but the reality yeah but the reality is i always think you think it's you think it's the easy option but actually it's the way harder option that the easy option is sorting yourself out and actually begin to thrive and beginning to kind of feel good about yourself and i think it's like i always think it's like a, like an astronaut tweaking a little thing and there's and there's you know navigation system there you do one little change and you believe a little bit more about yourself and you look back at about two or three months you're gonna go wow look how far i've come you know and we can all change and that's what the book is trying to say that change is there for all of us i mean this is the, our, our whole being is around changing at the minute it's, it's sunny you're sitting out relaxing there's a leaf falls and you know it's autumn and we're, we're always constantly in this cyclical process of change and we feel that we can't change and that's a lot of the clients I meet and that's why I wrote that book you know I wrote Parenting Screenager because I met so many families who are struggling with technology and I wrote a really practical guide I'm always just trying to help and say look here's what you can help you can do here with you know with technology and here's some boundaries and here's how you do it and watch out for porn and here's how you deal with cyberbullying and here's how you deal with so I was doing that and then with this book I was like we all come out of messy families and we all come from, you know, primary caregivers and our attachments and all that kind of stuff. And we all have negative ideas about kind of ourselves and we say negative things to hold us back and we do negative behaviors, but they're just habits. And it's like the chains of the chains of your habits. I think Samuel Johnson said, it's like, it's too weak to notice until it's too strong to break. You know, you don't notice you're caught in a habit until you try to change it. But then we can absolutely begin to change your habits because they're just habits. Thoughts are just habits. We think just in, in we have about sixty and seventy thousand thoughts a day, and we like ninety percent of those are what we thought yesterday. So we're we're constantly thinking familiar patterns, and so we get negative ideas about ourselves. And there's about six, seven, eight, nine the very important years of our in our lives, 
and we get negative things in there and then we just live out those paradigms. And I meet in my clinic, you know, 40 year olds, you know, coming in saying like, you know, I know this is not how I want to be thinking. This is not how I want to be behaving. This is not how I want to kind of live my life. I'm kind of like burnt out, not enjoying it. And 47.2 is our most unhappy year, right, as a human being. 15 is our most unhappy year as a teenager. 47.2 is our most unhappy year as a as a as an adult. And it's all of the. I think I think for men, it's because we get. I think and I talk about this a lot. Um, I think we're very bad in this country for remaining f- connecting to friends. I think we have them in our twenties, you know, and our early late teens, but. 30s, we're generally into our relationships and we're moving in our career and all that. By 44, 45, I find it myself, you know, kind of going, geez, where are all my friends that I had? You know, and I moved to Dublin, obviously, and all that. You're kind of going, you know, and I, and I see it in my clinic, so many men coming in and actually crying. I mean, really, no, I'm, I mean, this a lot, crying in the clinic, that they've no friends. Loneliness. loneliness. Yeah, loneliness. Absolute loneliness. And brilliant, fantastic Young men, the forties, only young fellas, like you know. What I mean, only you're a young adult at this point, um, and they're lost in loneliness. What, I think. What's your advice to them, or how, how do you help? Them? Yeah, well, I, I think first of all, and that's something I say to a lot of twenty-year-olds: don't lose your friendships. We got to work at that. I think women are better at that. They'll make the time. They'll go for a coffee. I don't think we're so good at going for coffee. We might go for a pint and watch a match, but we don't really talk to each other. We don't really say, Jesus, how's Gavin? You know, how are we getting on? If I was, if we were buddies and I go home and I said, how's Gavin? I'm like, Could we, I don't know. We had a pint and we watched the match, but I didn't ask him about how's, what's going on in his life or whatever like that. There's, yeah. a, there, there's something there too, though, in terms of, and I've experienced this in my own life, and maybe you've experienced it too, that, you know, as you move through life, you develop new habits, you de- mm. develop new routines. Like I don't drink alcohol anymore, for example, yeah. so I don't go to the pub for yeah, pints yeah. or any yeah. that, but some of my friends still do that and there's an immediate disconnect there from yeah. things they're interested in yeah, and what yeah. I'm interested in. And then you step into this void of loneliness and then you're there on your own, but it's like my values have changed and as my values have changed, your friends I've have lost yeah, this, some I've, friends, my friends yeah, have changed. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, I don't have any friends, and no, it's like, well, wh- where do I choose? Do I just stick with what I value here? Do I stick to these new habits and routines because it's uh, I feel it's more healthier for me in my life, or do I go back to the friend group? Well, yeah, I suppose uh, I suppose the way I, I don't, yeah, no, that's that's true, and I I would see that a lot, you know. Um, it's it's really hard to say when you see really really decent good people like really lonely, and um, I think men really struggle with that. I think women struggle. Um, in their forties, obviously the menopause and all that. But I think if you're the eldest daughter, it can be really hard because your parents are elderly and you get positioned as the good daughter, the good wife, the good mother, the good sister. You know, you get all this lumped onto you. And by forty-seven, you're going to go, "Whoa, this is not who I want to be." I think men in their forties struggle because they lose their friends like that, maybe. And I would say maybe it's about thinking about how can you be with those friends if you value them and they're wor- and they're worthy of being around you. And because that's another thing you have to think about who's who's who should be in your orbit and who shouldn't be in your orbit. Um, about how do you find a compromise there? Can you go to the pub and not drink alcohol? I, I know what that's like, you know what I mean? And you're kind of almost, as a person who drinks alcohol, go and have a pint there. You know, it's a, it's a bizarre culture that we have here around alcohol. There's no doubt about it. But um, yeah, I, I would try not to cut friends out because of different lives. I would try to kind of compromise there a little bit without cha- without without compromising my values and my new way of being. I try not to call it like a hard reset with them while they drink. And I, I would try to watch that if they're, if they're, if they're friends that you want to keep. Mm-hmm. And I would say that we're very bad as men in this country as staying connected to each other through our 40s. 
I've lived it personally and I've seen it in my clinic. You know, I've seen it unfold in front of me and I and I hear the sadness and I'm, I'm sad myself sometimes when someone will, will be crying in the clinic about it. I feel it. You know, and I'd say to them, I, 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 feel, I feel that sometimes as well. That I'm... Yeah, I wouldn't have that many male friends to go out. But then you saw, I'm so busy and you're working so much and I have three daughters and that's all I kind of want to do is be at home. That's your values? That's, that's kind of, if I'm being honest, I don't want to go to a pub in, in town and think my kids are at home. Like, you know, it's just not what I'm into in my 20s. I didn't have kids, sure. But as I get older, um, yeah, no, all my where I get the biggest joy in my life, Gavin, where I feel the most grounded the most connected to who I want to be is when I'm sitting down with the kids and we're watching I'm a celebrity get me out of here or whatever that you know they love and we're sitting there together and we've got a pizza and we're watching TV and we're just chatting and laughing at what's going on and we're just connected. Simple. Yes, yeah, simple. That's all I like, the simple stuff. Play the guitar together. My daughter loves singing. Play the guitar together. She plays the piano. That to me is like, geez, it doesn't get better than this. That actually heals my earlier childhood experience, if I'm mm -hmm. being honest. And isn't that masculine in itself? Yeah, absolutely. Showing up for them. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I love the kind of man that I've shown them. I mean, I'm not perfect. I can lose my temper and I give out to them and all the rest of it. And they'll shout down, oh, there's the family therapist. <laughs> Guess what? Down. You're not perfect. You yeah. know, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're it's showing good. that human side as well. No, but it's, this is what I say to parents. I think they, they labor under a misapprehension that we must be perfect as parents and that we must be clinical psychologists. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I think it's good for your kids to see you lose your temper. It's good for your kids to see that you've got teeth, but it's good for your kids to see you have an argument with your wife, and it's good for your kids to see how you resolve that. And all of that is really healthy. It's because when they go out and they meet people who are difficult, they're not living under this kind of cotton wool, coddled version of the life. You know, this is real life. We're living in a real family. I'm tired sometimes, and I'm hungry, and I'm, I'm annoyed, and you haven't done your homework, and you know, you're not going to bed, and you're chatting, it's 12 o'clock. This is all normal parts of like, you know, maturation and development, but it's how you resolve those things is the key. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of want to just go back to that concept of the, uh, of the couples that struggle with the porn mm. and you have men and couples that come to you where the man is usually the person that's addicted to porn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think I've ever had actually as a, as a woman, to be honest, in my clinic. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel it's perpetrated from perpetrated but from a anger towards a woman that stems back to their earlier childhood where these men and again I'm going down a, a deep rabbit hole here yeah. but these men have somewhat been filtered into a feminine society where the mother was at home the caregiver and a sort of life was dictated on her terms to go to school the female is the teacher at school and they are dictated by her terms and they're having then to suppress their, their masculine mm -hmm. traits, which then again, as I said, is expressed through porn. And I've touched on this before in terms of pornography, and it's, it's something I've reflected on myself, is that a big reason men use porn is a way to express their anger towards women because you watch porn and the, and the woman is generally the one being dominated or controlled in the scenario. And you come from... A conditioning where the woman has, or background where the woman has always been the one in control, mm. in control of you, and you felt helpless in that situation. So there's a great thrill where you see this woman being controlled. Mm. I don't know, Gavin, about that now, to be honest. Um, it's I'm interesting. interested in your opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. And, and I, I see, I, I'm thinking about do boys always see women as in control? And I don't know if they do or not, to be honest. Um, I think pornography 
I suppose, I, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to process that one now. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty a, loaded, yeah. There's a lot yeah. in there. Um, I suppose what, what I would see is, jeez, working in a family, working as a family therapist, a lot of the times the moms aren't empowered, you know, and it can be a generalization to think that, like, you know, that women feminize their boys and then boys, you know, and all that. I don't know about that. Um, I I've, I've maybe have other ideas about that. I think I think boys get into pornography because they don't know how to express their sexuality. I think they're scared about their sexuality. I think they're intimidated by girls. Um, and I think they don't know how to speak to girls and they don't know what girls w want to hear when they speak to them. And I think that's the kind of stuff I would hear from teenagers in my clinic, you know. Which is the failure of the father. I, well, it's, without even trying to... Well, it's maybe a failure of society in some ways, but I think there's a lot of lack. I do think there's a lot of lacking of fathers. I would see that as a common th golden, maybe not golden is the right color there, but a common thread through a lot of the stories I I work with with families and boys is the absent father, right? Emotionally absent. Yeah, well, also. even even absent, but like yeah, emotionally absent and and not able to communicate about you know what what the yeah absolutely and communicate his feelings or giving the boy any advice about anything you know. And I, I'd meet that an awful lot, you know, that absence. And um, I think pornography is probably a way of sa satiating some curiosity, which is, not, I mean, sexual curiosity is healthy and all that kind of stuff. But it's what what they're satiating it with is my concern. It's extreme. It's BDSM. It's like, you know, it's violent. It's uh, domination. It's, you know, that's not what we want our boys to think that girls want. Um, our boys aren't inherently bad. I've never met a bad kid in all my work. I've met some children who've done some very bad behaviors. I've never met a bad kid, you know? I, I, and I, I always look at the behavior and I always say, it's from systemic therapy, the behavior is the problem. The kid's not the, the problem, the behavior is the problem. So you kind of externalize the problem when you look at the problem. And I can see a young boy kind of going, wow, so I'm not inherently bad. Okay, so I've got control over that behavior so I can actually take control of myself. So that's just the behavior, it's not me. Because we often just like, you know, label someone the behavior is them. They're fucking scrotes. They're scumbag. Misunderstood. Yeah, just completely labeled so quickly. And then they're going to live that out. And yeah, so, I, you know, there's, it's very complicated. Uh, pornography use is incredibly complicated because there is normal, healthy sexual curiosity. And I'm not saying for a second that boys shouldn't be curious sexually or girls shouldn't be curious sexually. Of course they are. We all were growing up. That's a normal part of maturation and movement towards self and all that. But it's what they're satiating that with now is what the problem is. And it's not unproblematic for kids. And we're seeing it through all different uh, avenues filtering into relationships. And I'd sit with girls in my clinic. I, I'd have a lot of teenage girls that I work with. And um, I'd hear them sitting there in the clinic, you know, really upset about what the boy asked for in the relationship. And I'm thinking, where did he get the idea that that's something that she might be interested in? You know, I'm like, only, there's only one answer to that. It's pornography. Mm. You know, something extreme, something extreme. Absolutely. And maybe she might think this is cool that I'm into something extreme. And uh, is this where it's going? It's not just porn, but it's extreme porn. Uh, that's what it is now. Porn isn't porn anymore. It's all extreme. Gavin, that's the, that's the actual harrowing thing about it. It's actually not pornography anymore. Because, you know, when you watch Friends in the, in the 90s, Joy and Chandler are joking about they're watching porn and then someone comes to the door with a pizza and they're kind of going, maybe, you know, we're going to get lucky and all that kind of thing. It's all, it's all normalized because it wasn't extreme hardcore stuff that they were watching. It was all light kind of pornography. It's, it's irrevocably changed since the arrival of the smartphone. It's like gambling 
but the smartphone has changed. You know what I mean? It's so secretive. It's so you you can do it at any hour, at any time. You know, and this 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 situation with pornography is it requires a serious thought on the on the government's behalf because you can't parent this thing. Of course, you can bring in some let you know policies and some cutting off apps and all that, but it's embedded into all aspects of the phone. There, it's all over it. And then there's AI. Yeah, way. yeah, that's it. It's going to only, only get worse. Taking it to yeah, another yeah. extreme, that's which another, is that's again, another, another the, thing to worry the about. The whole importance of yeah. this petition that you mm. that you want to sign, and so everyone listen to this. Yeah, sign the fucking petition, and <laughs> please, how, how can they? Yeah, thanks, Gavin. Um, please sign the petition. Uh, join me on official Richard Hogan Instagram, and I've got the petition there in my bio. Just go into it. I think we've got about three thousand signatures so far in a week, which is great. But I want to get it up, you know, and to show show the government there's a huge huge interest in this and that there's a massive desire uh, and will to get the government to kind of come up with legislation because currently these platforms are absolutely lawless. I can't believe it now. I just can't believe that it's like Wild West stuff. There's no laws in place that your child, your 13-year-old daughter, you know, I've got three daughters and I want them to meet boys and whoever they meet that are healthy and I want them to meet people who respect them. You know, and I want them to have lovely, beautiful lives and share that intimacy and be healthy and all of that. I don't want them to meet guys who've been consuming pornography, you know, and think this stuff is what, what girls want. And we can't, we can't sit back and let senior infants consume pornography. So go on to my Instagram, official Richard Hogan, sign the petition. And um, I've had a lot of support from a couple of politicians around saying, look, this is brilliant. We need to do this. And it's just we need to show them that there's will here. That's when the government works, you know, when, when there's massive will. Here's all these signatures. This is what we want. This is what you need to do. And we bring in some policy legislators and, and bring something in. 3,000 is nothing. Yeah, I know. It's nothing so far, yeah. I know. I mean... It's not bad. It, it, is, it, is it because parents just don't understand the incredible threat that it brings? Yeah, well, I think well, CyberSafe Ireland had a report out there a couple of months ago and it said that 85% of parents don't know what the children are doing. That's correct, I would say. Um, a lot of parents don't want to think that their children are consuming pornography. And I'm saying to them, they are. It's not. It's not if. If it's that that they are. There's no way your child's going to get through to 15 without consuming pornography. It's just no way. It's impossible. It's all over their smartphone, and so we have to do something to stop it. That's the way I feel. What can I do as a father to an almost 13 year old and a father yourself? Yeah. To protect. I would always do that, and I say this to parents as a tip. It's a really good question. Um. It's about the, the levels of communication that you have with your child. And I say to parents, they can get it wrong a little bit. And I don't use the word wrong, but they can, they can make mistakes here, right? And they can threaten to take the phone off a child. And I would say that's the last thing you should be doing with your child because they'll never come, they'll be secretive and deceptive because that, that phone is their lifeline. That Snapchat is their fucking communicating communication. So if you take that off them, they're lost. And then they're outside the friendship group. So they're going to do anything not to lose their phone. And so they won't tell you what's going on, if they think you're going to overreact to what's going on. So what I say to my daughter and I sit her down and I say, look, you're probably going to see stuff that you don't want to see or, you know, that might be unnight, uh, might be nice. And I'd say, you know, it might be graphic. And I might, and I have this conversation where I say, what I want you to do, if, if you do, I'd love you to come and talk to me. We won't judge you. You don't get judged for anything here. We'll look at it. We won't take your phone off you, but we'll look at it and we'll give you some support around it. Right? And that's all I say to her. And then I have to kind of like trust her that she might do that. 
I'm hoping that she will do that. We have a good relationship. We talk a lot and, you know, I check her phone from time to time. She's not delighted that I do that, you know, <laughs> as I'm sure your own daughter. But I tell her when I gave her the phone to uh, at um, conf confirmation last year, I said, you want this phone? I'm giving it to you, but there's a couple of boundaries here that are non-negotiable. She would have she would have cut off her right arm to get the phone. I was like, I want to hear you say them back to me. You don't take the phone to your bedroom at night. You don't see, wake up in the morning with it, and we will check it from time to time. And dinner is a is a mm. is a phone free zone. Yeah. So no, she said, no phones to the table. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so I mean, that's it. It's, it's not that technology is an inherent bad. Mm. But it's just we have to parent it. Yeah. That's not going anywhere either. So no, it's not. I mean, it's only going to get more complicated. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But parents can be so reactive. That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. You see, and then they, they take the phone off, and then the next thing, your child won't come to you, mm -hmm. and that's like not desirable. There, that's not what you want. You want your parent, your child to think, well, they don't overreact. They're safe. They're safe to go to. So I've got a problem here. Loads of boys. Here, what I'd say, loads of boys here, Gavin, are getting caught by. Um, a case, so many cases I've worked in the last couple of years, I'm working with the guards and all that, um, where they're online. And I'm thinking to myself, I also think to myself at 14, 15, a girl connects with them, right? It's true Instagram or TikTok, or whatever. And they're chatting away and she's telling him how great she is and he's handsome and he's good looking and he's hot and all the rest of it. And he's thinking, fucking hell, this is amazing. Some girl's chatting to me, she's beautiful. And then she sends a picture of her chest and he's like, oh my God. And she's like, send back a picture of your, you know, body for me so he sends it back and then she tells him I'm sending that to everybody I'm only 12 and you're sending me pic this is what I no this has happened a lot of time. I'm only 12 and you're, so you're sending pictures of your body to a 12 year old you pedophile and we're going to send if you don't send us money so it's a man you know what I mean it's not a girl it's just it's just complete scam and if you don't start sending me money to this account here we're going to disseminate this everywhere and tell everyone you're a pedophile now to a boy who's 14 what the hell do you do in that scenario if your parents are going to take your phone and overreact, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you're, you're completely isolated. Yeah. And this is a scam that's working a lot. It, I, it just brings back a memory there where a previous guy that I worked with for a period of time rang me out of the blue and I wasn't, I wasn't a different call or a meeting at the time and one missed call, two missed calls, three missed calls. I was like, what the hell? What yeah. the fuck happened to this guy? Rang him up and then something like that happened to him on Snapchat where he was, exchanging photos with this woman and then demanded money showed showed that she actually had his photos or recordings of the photos or whatever and he was losing his shit thought he, this was going to be circulated I said man you don't do anything don't do anything just delete the Snapchat delete your Instagram just this will blow over yeah, just get yeah, off yeah. everything luckily nothing happened and as I said, this is all about how you react to the yeah. situation now. So Exactly. And like that boy, how does a boy react? Well, if you tell them, you know, some things might happen that are bad, you know, and if you get in, in any situation, we won't judge you and we won't take your device off you. We'll listen to you and we'll try to give you support. That's all we're going to do. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're a 14 year old and you have that message in your head and that happens, well, I think you're more likely to go down and say, mom, dad, I'm in a fucking serious situation here. Can you help me? Yeah, yeah. brilliant, man. Richard, thank you so much. And we need Thanks, more signatures. And yeah, we do indeed. We need more people to come to your page and and uh, see the great work you're doing, experience it, buy your book, your books. My books. <laughs> and where can they find you? Um, on In social media, is it? Social media. Yeah, yeah. Instagram is mainly where I kind of work off. I don't have a TikTok or that. Uh, official Richard Hogan. Or on my webpage, you know, um, Therapy Institute. Brilliant. Yeah. Richard, Gavin, it's been a real this. pleasure. Yeah, likewise, man. Thank you. Cheers.